Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Opposing Points podcast. My guest today is Tiffany Justice, co-founder of Moms for Liberty. We talk about her journey from school board member to establishing the organization that fights to reestablish the already recognized right of parents to raise their own children and not co-parent with the government. I hope you enjoy this conversation. And if you do, don't forget to like and subscribe to the channel. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hey, Tiffany, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me on, David. Yeah. Um, just for, for people tuning in who may not know who you are or, or what Moms for Liberty is about, uh, could you just you know let people know? Sure. Um, my name is Tiffany Justice. I'm the co-founder of Moms for Liberty, along with Tina Deskovich. We both are, are moms. I have four kids, uh, 17 and under, um, and I served on school board in my local community from 2016 to 2020. Um, that was an interesting experience. We learned a lot. And Tina and I like to say that we saw behind the education curtain and then COVID happened and the entire country got to see behind the education curtain. And once our school board terms ended at the end of November of 2020, something needed to change. We saw parents standing up and speaking out, um, but they were being retaliated against. Oftentimes they were getting discouraged. Mm -hmm. And we knew that the time was now for parents to rise up and for us to reclaim education in our country. And so we decided to try to unify those parents. And so now um, we were we started in January of 2021 and we have 250 chapters in 42 states. Okay, that's awesome. Thank you. Wow. Yeah, that's that's really impressive. So that's a pretty quick growth in the amount of time that you started. And I think it points to the the passion, uh, like, so to speak, uh, mama bears. Um, like, what, what do you think it is about moms that this movement has blown up so much? There just isn't anything you wouldn't do to protect your child. And parents know and see that our children are under threat during COVID, especially parents saw that their children were being put last. Yeah. Any decision that was being made where parents would normally always put their children first before themselves, right? If you didn't have enough food to eat, you would always feed your children before you would feed yourself. And yet it felt like everyone in this country kind of fed themselves before our children. Mm -hmm. And so when we watch the teachers unions who have undue influence, uh, to put it lightly, in our children's education, um, when we saw what they did to keep schools closed and all of America saw the breadth of their influence, moms and dads said, wait a second, something, this is off balance. These are our children. Mm -hmm. And then you have the American Academy of Pediatrics coming out and telling moms, um, you know, well, your baby doesn't really need to see your face. Mm -hmm. um, and moms, I have, as I said, four kids, um, babies absolutely need to see their mom's face and their smile. And uh, so parents said, well, that's a lie. And so all of a sudden we had all these institutions, all these bureaucrats, the government lying to us, and we knew it. And we said, something has to change. And so um, we're trying to change things. We just endorsed uh, 270 candidates around the country for school board. And on Tuesday, we'll see how they do um, at the ballot box. But we feel really confident that, um, that, that people messed with the wrong segment of our society. This is a parent revolution. Right, right. Well, you don't look like a domestic terrorist to me, so... <laughs> You know what? And to be honest, David, I just want I reject that. Yeah. I always rejected that label. Yeah. I thought, you know, there were some people that said, oh, yeah, I'm a domestic terrorist. And my feeling always was, 
what an insult to, to say that I'm an enemy of my own country right. um, because I'm a, I am a patriot. I, I love America. It's such a special place and mm-hmm. um, we're so blessed to live here. So uh, we at Moms for Liberty always rejected that. And I hope there'll be some accountability for the actions that the Department of Justice took when they did that. Yes. And so your, your, your time on the school board predated uh, COVID. That's correct. So what was that behind the scenes look like before? Was there an eye-opening moment? Like how did that shift? It was eye-opening. You know, I unpacked a lot of backpacks um, first before um, I served on school board and I got into working with schools because I worked to try to help to, um, to get my kids school renovated it was we had rats in the cafeteria it was a very old school and it was kind of being ignored in the district and so i had rallied moms um, to help to get the school renovated and so i had a little experience with working with the district and understanding capital outlay and budgeting Mm -hmm. Um, but then i ran for school board and it was eye-opening because you get to see this administrative state that works uh, outside of the school board and, and under the purview, under the, the direction of the superintendent, but oftentimes has an agenda. And there are activist organizations who are being funneled money by much larger national organizations and sometimes associations in the country, um, funneling procedures into schools to really change the direction of our country using our children. And um, that was eye-opening to me. And, and it was very evident that the, the primary stakeholders being parents and children um, did not have the voice and the influence that they needed to in public education. And um, I just very much knew that we needed to build an army of parents who could fight back. Right. And I think I think most parents maybe didn't know or hear what their kids were learning in school. But I think this, it's not like something changed when COVID happened. It ex- in my view, it exposed the power structure that already existed. I mean, we've we've been on the decline in like reading and math for for a while now. Um, so you know, as as you're in your place at, in the school board, but even prior, like, what are some of the structural or do you think you know learning or coordination problems that can that can be contributing to some of these already downsliding um, statistics? So I think that Americans in general, especially parents, had an expectation for what would happen when their children go to school. They think that they would learn practicable skills that they could then go on to use in their life, right, to be successful, to have a family. But that's not what the goal, it seems, of public education is anymore. Um, James Lindsay talks uh, often of Paolo Ferreri and the pedagogy of the oppressed Mm -hmm. book that is often used in lots of uh, teaching colleges and and to try to help teachers. And um, unfortunately, what it became was the Marxification of education. Our children's education has really been stolen from them. Um, And so over the course of, of the past, I'd say, 40 years or so, I think we've just seen a continued steady decline. Um, And it is very concerning because the goal of education, I think now the public education system is to make our children politically literate, to make them little social justice warriors. Um, And they're not learning how to read. And I think that's probably the biggest concern. Um, Emily Hanford has a new podcast out called Soul to Story. If you haven't listened to it, you should. And and she talks about... um, why we are where we are with reading in America right now. And unfortunately, um, teachers have been taught incorrectly on how to teach children how to read and and children are not getting what they need in school to actually learn to read, which is direct explicit instruction um, based in phonemic awareness. And 
Um, unfortunately, that hasn't been happening. And so uh, that that is one of the things that I think is of, of primary concern. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, like this whole, it's literally called whole language, sight words. Um, before, So I grew up in a, in a household that already had these beliefs when I was a kid. So my my mom taught me using, I think it's called the, the Spalding Method or Orton-Gillingham before I could go to nursery school. So I was reading in nursery school, basically, uh, three to four years old. I would be, she'd be teaching kids that they told were dyslexic or or something like that. And she would just be like, no, they just weren't taught to read properly. Like so they were playing a guessing game. Yeah. So so they'd read uh, lion as loin is the same word. They just kind of switch the, the letters. So, I mean, I, I grew up being able to read, but I watched how they, how they, uh, how they teach. Even uh, she put me in like a Kumon, if you've heard of that. Mm -hmm. um, and she never let me do the reading side, just the math, because they would do the same thing. They show you a picture of an apple and the word apple sightseeing. Um, so I think that's a really good diagnosis uh, of the problem that, that, that you're observing. And we need to, you know, I, I think teachers want to be able to reach children in the classroom. And I think there are many teachers who are frustrated because the tools that they're in the skills they're using in the classroom with students aren't having the outcomes that they want and they don't know or understand why and oftentimes the students are being blamed for that but really as adults if something isn't working it's our job to take a step back and ask ourselves why are we not having the outcomes that we want out of public education I come from the business world my husband and I are business people I grew up in a family of business people so mm -hmm. the idea that two-thirds of children not reading on grade level can you think of any other industry or any other business that you could run where you would have that failure rate and still be able to succeed. Um, and, and yet here in public education, we just continuing to, we continue to pour more and more money into a system that is failing to teach students. And we're allowing people to come up with excuses for educational failure. You know, oh, well, if only the kids, you know, felt safe and valued, we need more social emotional learning. If mm -hmm. only the children weren't so oppressed, we need to lace everything with critical race theory. If only the children didn't feel like we were boxing them in. We need queer theories so that they can totally understand who they are at five and, and understand maybe they aren't a girl, even though they were born one. All of these excuses being made when truly what we need to do is, is peel back all of the layers. I, I, I like to think, David, of education as a cake. Yep. And I feel like we have a cake inside and it's crumbling and it's stale and it's dry. Mm -hmm. And yet instead of taking off the icing we and, and really looking and fixing the cake, all we keep doing is putting more flowers and more sprinkles and more right. decoration. And it's not going to solve the problem that we have. And I just think that parents are the many and we are the primary stakeholders. We care the most about the children that are in the schools. I will fight that until the end. There is no one in any school that loves my child more than I love my child, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I think many parents feel that way, if not most. Um, and so it's up to us. Um, and, and it's uncomfortable right now. The teachers unions don't really love us because uh, we're disrupting the, the balance of power, uh, mm -hmm. but I'm okay with that. Uh, we will not stop and we cannot stop until we reclaim education in America. What's, what's crazy to me is like I graduated high school in 2011 and none of this, there was, you know, there was the, the, the pride clubs, which is fine, but there was, there was none of this. Um, they were still teaching abstinence. They were like, you know, of course, kids were having sex and whatnot. But like this agenda from the time, maybe there was a little bit of it, but it would—it just seems since I've graduated high school in 2011 that things just weirdly, they followed that, you know, technology lower exponentially 
getting more advanced. And I don't know how that happened in such a short period of time. In 2018, there was a, a large influx of money um, from very far left um, groups into public education, into activist organizations who then went in and, and really did a lot of work within the administrative space of districts to push in procedural information. So they circumvented the board and kind of, you know, I, I think of it as they usurp the authority of the board, right? It's because the board should be directing policy in the district um, procedure is how that policy is rolled out by the superintendent. But when you have Glisten and GLAD writing, writing procedural manuals, and then you have groups like these equality groups across the country, pushing them in through their student services department of any given school district, um, you know, you turn around and, and your entire student services department or your entire district has been transformed. Um, you know, Ibram X. Kendi likes to talk about, um, you know, a department of anti-racism and having these commissars where they're really kind of in charge of all of these different things. They would be a part of every level of government. Mm -hmm. Um, that's what they've done in the schools with these DEI departments, with the equity uh, departments. This is These are people that everyone in the district has to answer to. And so they've really taken and sucked up all the power and the direction in the district. That's why you have things happening like in Florida. Um, we, we know, and, and Tina and I were just on Dr. Phil recently. I don't know if you saw it, but it was a trip. You should, it was really- No, I was actually just listening to him on Joe Rogan. Okay. So was, I, I will listen to that next. Okay. It was really interesting. And they had the director of this group, Equality Florida, and Tina and I were there and we served on school board. So we know this organization well. And we told her, and it's true, they worked to get procedural documents into schools and manuals that totally disregarded parental rights. And so we have a friend of ours in Leon County whose daughter filled out a six page uh, document uh, with a counselor and with an assistant principal where she decided that she was gonna go by a different name, that that would be keeping, kept from her parents, that mm -hmm. she would use a different bathroom that she would, uh, where she could sleep when she was on uh, a field trip. And, and for a parent not to know, and for a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old or an 11-year-old to be making these decisions on their own is just like, what? Mm -hmm. And, um, but that's, that's what's happening. I mean, you, and, and it's happening all over the country, SB 107 out in California, um, Prop proposal three in Michigan, right. That's on the ballot. And that's going to go into the state constitution that, I, that basically says that all individuals have the right to sterilization and, and to abortions. And what it does is lower that age of consent and really take the power away from parents to have any kind of guiding, you know, role in their child's life if if a school decides they know better. And, and that's just crazy. Um, you know, we will partner with our children's schools, but we do not co-parent with the government. So you mentioned that uh, uh, the, the disclosing of the pronouns thing, that was what I was going to bring up as, as well. I, I think the common defense for that that I've heard as well, we don't know how the parents going to react. Maybe they're afraid. Um, what would you say? What would you say to that? That the, the child's afraid to talk to the parents? Yeah, they think that, you know, they they might have a, let's say, a, a home that doesn't accept them as uh, as whatever gender they identify as. That's I think that's they they want to say that they are coming from a good place in protecting the child. I think that would be the common defense that they would give for that um, authority. So I was just wondering what you would yeah. have to say in response to that. I'm happy to talk about that. I mean, it's 2022. Don't tell my child 
not to talk to me about something or to be scared to talk to me about something. Don't put that idea in their heads. And if my child's gay, I'm going to raise that child the same way as I'm going to raise that child who's straight. I don't. My, I said on Dr. Phil, my child does not need a sexual spirit guide at school. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's the same. It's the same person, someone that's loving and kind and that can have you know committed relationships. Those are the values that are that we hold true in our home. Um, and I love and accept my children no matter what. Um, and I think that's the way that the majority of American parents feel. I think you have a generation of adults who perhaps weren't as accepted in their homes when they were growing up. And, and I sometimes feel like they're living vicariously through the children and, and putting this idea in their minds that parents will reject them. I also think that that's part of the goal. Um, they, they want uh, the children to reject their parents. They want the children to feel that they need another family or that they're not accepted or loved and that they will be accepted and loved within this new community. So so um, I think that that's part of them, the way that that some of these groups are accomplishing their goals. Listen, there may be parents who uh, will not uh, affirm uh, uh, the gender uh, transition of their child, and, and that is their right as a parent. Um, the truth of the matter is that gender dysphoria is psychological distress, um, and uh, it is no different than any other psychological distress that your child may feel. And I challenge anyone to tell me um, in any other instance how we would lean into psychological distress. If your child was anorexic, would you encourage her to diet and starve herself? Would you take her to get liposuction? Um, Right. Would you, would you would you do it at the at the if your child said you know I'm going to kill myself if you don't let me have liposuction? Would you then get liposuction for your child? Absolutely not. In no in no way in no form have we ever allowed suicide or the risk of suicide to be. Um, a reason to continue down the path of encouraging psychological distress. Um, and, and so this issue should be parented just like any other issue that a parent deals with with their child. And how dare a school think that they have the right or the ability or the responsibility um, to parent a child through something like that. I'll tell you, David, I mean, there was a little girl in Clay County who tried to kill herself at school. She was 11 years old. She mm-hmm. had been put to a gender transition program at school. When the parents came, they uh, were told that they were that they were known to be Catholic, and that the school assumed that because of their religion they would not affirm their child's gender, and that is just crazy. You know, if my sixteen-year-old daughter got pregnant, um, would I be mad and upset? Yeah, I would. I absolutely would be upset. Does that mean that she should be told not to tell me and that someone else should take her for an abortion? Um, no. Mm-hmm. That is what should happen. And so, you know, this idea that a parent might get upset or, or that, you know, somehow parents are going to abuse their child. Um, you know, there are some parents who make bad decisions and, and do hurt their children, but we have laws that are meant to protect those children. Um, but, but you know, we don't take away everyone's driver's license because someone chooses to drive drunk on the road. Um, and, and our rights cannot be curtailed by some people who abuse those rights. Right. And, and on top of the, the COVID, this seems to be another um, issue that that Moms for Liberty is is kind of dealing with. What is kind of the do you have like a, I guess, a portfolio of things that, you know, you think are your top concerns and issues that uh, that that should be on the top of people's minds? 
So we're not a top-down organization. So Tina and I don't set, you know, ideas or themes of concern and then push that down into chapters. What we really do is help to uh, have chapters to be responsive to the biggest concerns mm-hmm. in their own community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, it, it is it is truly very specific on the county and the community and the district and very focused on the concerns that are happening there. I will tell you, however, that there are common themes um, across the country and different and, and common commonalities and what parents are concerned about. And um, the age of information and social media, I know, is oftentimes blamed for many things. Um, but there are wonderful things about it, too. And I think we're, we've brought out the best uh, of, of different types of social media, including Facebook. In fact, we were censored on Facebook early on. Uh, and they were giving us a very hard time. And we wrote an open letter to Mark Zuckerberg and said, you know, we're we are using your what you have created to the very best of our ability and, and trying to bring out the best in, in what you created, which was this ability to network mm-hmm. and to communicate with each other. And so um, what's been created with Moms for Liberty is just a, a real camaraderie around the country and a sharing of information that is helping us to be more responsive and more effective in our advocacy. Mm. What, what were you uh, what were they giving you trouble for posting or, or what oh, it was nothing I mean it was crazy stuff and when we would set up a chapter then they would post something like oh our first meeting is happening and it would get canceled and we and then the, they would be suspended or the account something would happen with the account and um it, it, I think it was more because they were being reactive to reporting mm-hmm. we've had a lot of um haters that like to try to um, sign us up for porn websites and try to report us for nonsense. And, you know, th- there's just been such an effort to vilify parents who are speaking out because, again, we're disrupting the balance of power. I mean, think about it for a second. The teachers' unions pulled $575 million from dues from teachers across the country in 2021. Right. $575 million, the majority of which they used in political work. Not in representative, not rep- not in representation of their members, mm-hmm. but in political advocacy and in funding activist organizations. And so um, we're a real threat to them. They know that. You know, schools don't work if our kids aren't in them, and and it's going to be a real problem. Uh, you know, for for them, and it, and we will continue to be a problem for them because they have way too much power, and and that needs to end. I guess what 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 uh what advice would you? tell parents that are that are that would hear this and uh and maybe want to run for school board i mean when i hear about like running for an office it seems like a lot of work um so like what is what is an easy way to to learn about how to, are you helping people run for school board and and what does that process look like yeah so we've been partnering with a number of different groups and right now we're working with leadership institute quite a bit they're establishing a whole new training um uh, kind of module for people who want to run for school board, who are thinking about running for office. And then also, how do you support those candidates, right? Because right. you run for office and you need a ton of help. You're right. You need people around you to support you and help you. You can't do it alone. But even after you get elected, we can't forget about our elected representatives. They're just people too, mm-hmm. right? And they need information. They need support. Um, and so we are working to do that. So Leadership Institute, um, there, I know the Family Policy Allowance has a, a parent academy that they used to with some school board training um, and Heritage um, Action also has been doing some different school board training. And so we really try to vet out um, different programs uh, to help our moms to see which ones are the best ones to work with um, and the most reliable to work with. I would say to anyone considering running for office that they should absolutely do it. 
Absolutely. It is hard, but you learn an incredible amount about yourself. Mm-hmm. You learn um, an incredible amount about your own community, which is really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and serving in office is very rewarding. It's very difficult, but you also um, get to be a part of trying to create positive change in your community. And it, it's a really special thing to be able to do. Yes. Um Here's a, I guess, a tough question, but do you think that the school system is salvageable? As it's- I don't think I don't think we have a choice. Uh, <laughs> honestly, I, I mean, honestly, yeah. you know, I I support school choice very much. I support education freedom. I think that every parent, I know, every parent has the fundamental right to direct the upbringing of their children, mm-hmm. and so that means that parents need to be able to direct their, the education of their child. That's why curriculum transparency is so important. And that's why it's part of parental rights. How can you direct your children's education if you don't know what they're being taught, right? Mm-hmm. You can't do that in a reactive manner. You have to be proactive in that. Um, but uh, all of the people that can pull their children out of school can do that. And we're still going to have an, a majority of American children in America's public schools. I do not think public schools are going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's happening right now in public schools is that our children are being turned against this country and turned against each other. And it has to stop. And so we talk a lot about reclaiming public education. I think it's a very necessary step in, in kind of riding the ship in America. So is it salvageable? Yes, I believe it is. I think that there are a lot of uh, well-meaning, well-intentioned uh, people that are involved in education who are frustrated by the lack of positive outcomes that we're seeing out of schools. And I think that um, we just need to stand firm and stand for the truth and uh, not be willing to compromise in any way because these children deserve to learn to read. They deserve to be given the skills to unfold their full potential in life. Mm-hmm. You, you seem very like optimistic, which I appreciate because a lot of people are just like, this is that, this is that. So what what makes you optimistic? As Is it just you know what you're seeing? Um, what makes you so optimistic? I have faith in the American people. Um, I have faith in parents who love their children. and what is the alternative? I mean, are we going to just walk away mm-hmm. from our country, from our children? Um, you know, that that's just not, that's not an option. Um, but I do have faith in people and, and in people working together. And I think America is such a remarkable, special place. We only endorse in school board races. And mm-hmm. the reason for that is because that's the the government closest to you is the is the best government to be to to affect and that's we believe in limited government mm-hmm. and school board makes a lot school board members make an enormous amount of of decisions that affect your daily life and your children's education mm-hmm. and so that's where we're starting because it really is the baseline it really does it is the foundation but the exciting thing that I am super optimistic and happy about is the fact that we have, as I said, we've endorsed 270 candidates across the country. That's not counting uh, the elections that happened um, earlier this year. So we had, you know, we had elections in Virginia last year. You had New York, um, yeah. Wisconsin, right? So what happens after four years in elected office as a school board member? You now have a little name recognition. You understand the way that government works, right? You've built a lot of relationships. What do you do next? Maybe you stay on school board. Maybe you decide you're going to run for a different office. But these are ordinary people. 
these aren't people who decided they were going to be politicians and, you know, started to cut their teeth at 21 on the school board and then work their way up. And 40 years later, you know, they're president or something, right? Mm. This is, these are, and, and not, and that's not to say, I mean, listen, I appreciate th that a lot of people that have served in elected office have done a very wonderful job, but unfortunately, uh, we do find oftentimes that there are policies that are being made in Washington that are not good for the people on the ground in their states. Mm -hmm. And I think we have a real opportunity here to change the direction of our country um, by electing normal people uh, who are moms and dads and community members who love their kids, love their country, and are in it for the right reasons. And so I'm hopeful because I think this is a real turning point for us. And yeah. Um, yeah. I think I think even for um, people that don't have kids, don't plan on having kids, I think there's a really vested interest in fighting for this issue, because even if you don't plan on it, these people, these these kids are going to be your doctors, your lawyers, your congressmen. Um, so I'm, on that, I'm curious if you have people that are just not parents being like, hey, let me run for this office and let's fix things. Oh yeah, absolutely we do. Um, absolutely, and we have members that don't have children that are, you know, that but have children around them in their lives, right? And they're seeing, they're talking to their brother or their sister or their son. You know, they, they're talking to people and they're hearing what's happening and they are concerned. It's gonna take all of us. Every person has a role to play here. Um, mm -hmm. and so absolutely, we, I mean, having children is not a prerequisite to be a member. Having children is not a prerequisite to run for office and be supported by us. Um, you know, we want, we, 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 have said, if you go to our website, momsforliberty.org and then slash parent pledge or pledge, excuse me, we have something called the parent pledge there. Mm -hmm. And we have elected officials all over the country that are signing in. And what it says is that you recognize that parents have the fundamental right to direct the upbringing of their children. Mm -hmm. What is a fundamental right? A fundamental right is a right that the government does not give you and they cannot take away. This is an inherent right. If you believe in God, a God-given right, or if you believe in nature's God, right? It's a natural right that you have to your children. Mm -hmm. And that's the litmus test. That's, that's the baseline. Um, if we can't come together, and, and can you imagine if you were speaking with the founding fathers and you were like, oh, by the way, if we could just write something into the constitution, the bill of rights that says that parents have the, the right to direct the upbringing of their kids, because- um, we're not sure what's going to, you know, we, we think the government might want to raise other people's kids for them at some point. You'd be like, oh, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. right? If you told me in 2015 when I was running for school board that I should put make a policy that said that boys use the boys room and girls use the girls room, um, I probably would have told you you were crazy. Mm -hmm. I would have said, you know, that's not. So here we find ourselves in this place where things are constantly changing. And so that baseline, I think it's so important to set. Um, but I don't know if I answered your question. No, I'm you sorry. did. I, I think I think for me, uh, I graduated in 2015, and I think around there is at least when the people getting uh, college in 2015. I think around then is when people started going a little bit nuts. Um, people were, you know, laying in the street, blocking traffic. Um, I think it was um, after following uh, Eric Garner's death in New York, um, they were inhabiting the. Uh, president's office demanding to speak with him, demanding that certain percentages of professors be X, Y, Z. And I saw this and it just happened like all of the sudden, I'm just seeing here watching these freshmen parading around, marching and making demands of the school that they're privileged to go to. Um, 
and it just it just seems so sudden to me um it, and i can't really point my finger to what happened or how it happened because they're only a few years behind me um I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's scary. Yeah, I, no, I, I think um, I think it, it it has been happening for quite some time, and I think it's we're crazy. just seeing the results of of it right now. Right. Um, Not being a parent, it was really sudden. It was just like. Well, all, all of a sudden, what is it? Slowly and then all at once, right? Yeah. Um, yes, and that's kind of, I guess, what it's felt like. But it has happened slowly. It truly has. It has happened through, you know, our higher ed institutions that were really infiltrated. Um, James Lindsay talks about, you know, where did the hippies of the '60s go, and where did the radicals go, and and they went. The, where did the radicals in the '60s go? And he and he always says they they went to the classroom, and um, I think that's true. And I think we're just kind of bearing the fruit now of the conservatives in general seeding the ground on public ed. Mm -hmm. um, I really feel like for the past 20 years, at least especially, that conservatives very much were focused on school choice. And I like to, I always think of it as like school choice or die, right? You couldn't mm -hmm. criticize it, you couldn't say anything. Um, and while I think it's right, even in New York, you see amazing results from the charter school programs that have been right. run. And that's wonderful. And I support school choice. Um, we really did allow public education to be taken. No one was watching. No one was paying attention. And we can never allow that to happen again. One of my last questions is, what is your kind of pulse on as far as where we are in this, I guess, battle to reestablish that right to parent your own children? Like, we've got the these these bathroom situations heating up. We had in Loudoun County um, here in Virginia with that uh, situation in the bathroom. Um, do you think that the tide has turned yet? Do you think it's still leading to that precipice of of co collision, I guess? Or where, where do you think we are in that? I think we're just getting started, to be honest. Just getting started. Just getting started, yeah. And, and you know, again, <laughs> the Dr. Phil thing, I, I go back to it because there were so many telling moments there. There was a professor there, who, Jody Armour, who talked about the fact that, you know, the community is really the stakeholder as far as public education is concerned. And I would agree to an extent that it does matter. I believe in public education. I think there's value to educating the students of uh, the children of your country and wanting them to be literate and functional people. Um, but the primary stakeholders are the parent and the child. Um, but the other thing was Dr. Phil was talking about CRT. He said something about it. And you can hear me in the taping. I say, oh yeah, we settled that. That's all cleared up, right? No. Um, you know, critical race theory it has been woven into almost every aspect of our children's education in right. so many ways. And if it's not explicitly happening in the classroom, it's happening in the teacher development trainings that are that are going on. And the teachers are, are, are teaching through the lens of, of critical theory in many different ways. And so we're just getting started. What I would say to you that needs to happen and that I'm working very hard to, my, to make happen in my role at Moms for Liberty mm -hmm. is to build relationships and partnerships to help to use the system to reform the system. That is what we must do. And if I did it, if, I, if you ask me what I need right now, what we need to be able to be more successful, I need business people who are willing to invest in creating um, opportunities for us to reclaim the system. And, and we are only going to do that by going in and um, using that system to reform it and reform itself. And so that's kind of my focus and goal right now. And that happens in a lot of different ways through policy, through services, through litigation. Um, but we'll use all the tools in the toolbox. Yeah, that's, that's, that seems like what's necessary to do on top of 
you know, continuing to push to fund the the students and not the systems and and giving parents more more choice and more opportunity so that, you know, you don't have situations like Baltimore's public school system where you have so much money funding. Um, and even on Joe Rogan, I think Dr. Phil and him were talking about how one third of adults are not capable of reading a story to their children, which is the first step. Like I grew up with my father reading to me. And that is a critical component. I think it's recognized anywhere where having books in the home and being read to, or even the radio on or whatever can create uh, a more well-rounded individual. Um, And what you said about uh, them moving into teaching is I I immediately thought about um, the What is a Woman documentary and just listening to the absolute, it doesn't even, I don't know how they make sense of it themselves in their own minds of what they're saying. Um, And I've talked with or watched people my age talk like this too. And it's a total break from reality. Because if we yeah. can't agree on what words mean and what things mean, then then you're doomed. It's the like battlegrounds are our schools and the dictionary. Those are two of the primary battlegrounds in this culture war that we are currently fighting. And it is a culture war. And um, Andrew Barbart said that politics is downstream from culture. Um, you know, culture is downstream from education. And we must reclaim education and, and our colleges. Um, in order to be able to really turn the country around. But I think you have a lot of invested people who recognize that now and are going to try to work to make that happen. Right. Um, So I guess, um, you know, thank you for joining me and and talking. And where can people follow you and uh, get more information on running for school board, any donations, whatever they they can do to to keep this fight going? Because I'm watching you guys make a, a lot of progress. And it's even though I don't have a, a kid that I know of, it's it's much uh, it's very encouraging to to watch uh, watch you guys you know speak up and uh, and show up to school board meetings and and fight for these things that make America what it is. I always joke that you know people my age mostly uh, they know their one night stands better than the Constitution. Um, so, uh, where can people follow you and, and and get more information on all these things? Absolutely. So you can go to momsforliberty.org. That's our website. We have a big map on the website. Click on the state you live in and you can see the chapters that currently exist. You can uh, click to join that chapter if you live there, but then they, they, they'll have a website. We offer all the chapters a website on, the, on uh, their, own, their own chapter website. Um, or you can click to start a chapter and you just need 10 like-minded friends. There's a process that we do go through to try to help to support and vet chapter chairs. Um, we are on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter. Um, I'm at the number four, Tiffany Justice on Twitter. Tina Deskovich is on Twitter and our Moms for Liberty page. And I want to say thank you. I think you had a friend of ours, Billboard Chris on. Yeah, um, cool guy. Chris Elston. Yeah, he's a great guy. And I just want to say this as a, as a closing note. You're having me on the show and I am proud to help to lead this organization, but it is um, thousands and thousands and thousands of people across the country that are making this change happen. And we are all doing it together. And people like Chris have been so brave in helping, especially on issues like gender ideology or gender dysphoria that can be difficult to talk about. Um, And oftentimes we're shamed and silenced over speaking about. Um, He has been so helpful and so kind to all of us uh, to teach us about what has happened in Canada and to help stem the tide here. And if you're watching what's happening um, in Florida, the Board of Medicine met again today, um, but we are making great strides in this area um, and helping to save the innocence of children. So thank you 
for taking the time to try to highlight people that really are making a difference. You are appreciated. Yes. And I think they're, they're, they switched their guidance in the UK, right? Um, yeah. So in Sweden, in Finland, in, um, in England as well, they closed Tavistock, which was the, the largest gender clinic. And, and it's really switching away from an affirmation model where if a child expresses that they believe they have gender dysphoria, that immediately it's affirm, affirm, affirm. It's more of a watch and wait um, and, and incorporating mental health treatment. Um, and thank goodness, because um, parents deserve to be informed about decisions when they're making them for their children. And on this issue of gender dysphoria, um, parents have been lied to. They've been told these things are reversible um, and they're not. They've been told that their child will kill themselves if they don't affirm, and that is not true either. And so, you know, we are making great, great strides in this area. And I hope in another year, if you have me back on, we'll be able to say that we've really stemmed the, the tide here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of my biggest interests with this channel interviewing you and, and people like Chris is uh, you may not associate yourself with the term, but brave, courageous, truthful, obviously, it probably comes natural to you because you're a parent and you would, you would never think of that. But that's how it comes across to, to everybody else that maybe was too afraid to say something. So it always starts with one. So uh, appreciate what you're doing very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.